Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here. Uh, you look pretty dry, so that's a good thing. Uh, it was pouring out there. I had no idea the rain was coming, but um, I'm glad you made it in. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, to um, Genesis 37. And uh, if you have a Bible, great. If you don't, you should be able to find one to use in one of the chair racks down around you. Uh, if you're a guest today, just so you know, uh, throughout the summer, we've been in a series called Moonwalking with God. It's a series in which we've been attempting to fine-tune the art of remembering, you know, remembering who God is and uh, what He's done for us. And we're doing it by reflecting on Old Testament stories too good, too important to, uh, to forget. And last week we looked at a guy named Job who experienced something that uh, we all experience, and that is pain and suffering. And if you missed last week, I would recommend you go online and listen. I think you're going to find it very, very helpful but in a nutshell, Job said, uh, in the midst of suffering, we need to recognize the complexity of life and also recognize our own limitations and humbly place our hope and trust in God, no matter what, because he's God and we're not. He's altogether uh, wise and we're not. He sees the end from the beginning, the good in the bad, even when we can't. And so with that in mind, I, I want to revisit with you this morning the Old Testament story of Joseph, a quintessential a rags-to-riches story made culturally famous by Andrew Lloyd Webber in his musical production, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. How many of you have seen that uh, production? Okay, a lot of you have. It's currently running throughout Great Britain. It's very, very popular over there right now. I have never seen it. Uh, part of the reason for that is I'm just not, I'm not a musical guy. The whole dancing, singing thing, it, it, just not my shtick. In fact, I took my wife on a date to see Les Mis, and I fell asleep. I took a 40-minute nap in the midst of it. Um, that went over well, as you might imagine. Um, but I'm just not a musical kind of guy, but uh, I hear that it's really good. I've never seen it. In case you're not familiar with it, Joseph's story, well, it's a bit long and involved, really. I mean, it stretches over nine chapters of Genesis. But let me give you my Reiki summary. Joseph was one of 12 sons born to Jacob, also called Israel, the grandson of Abraham. And Joseph was his father's favorite. Everybody knew it, especially his brothers, who one day sell him off to some merchants who were traveling to Egypt, and the merchants in turn sell him into slavery. They sell him to a guy named Potiphar, a rich guy named Potiphar uh, in e Egypt. And while enslaved on this guy's estate, uh, Joseph actually does pretty well for himself, uh, because he was a very hard worker and very bright. We also know from Scripture we're told he was very handsome and well-built. So he was a Hebrew hunk, and uh, his master's wife takes notice of that and tries to hook up with him. Uh, he refuses her advances, and in anger she, she kind of turns the tables, and she falsely accuses him of trying to seduce her, and it gets him thrown into prison. In prison, uh, through a series of strange events and unlikely relationships and friendships, Joe ends up in Pharaoh's court, a court of the king, and eventually becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And uh, through truly inspired vision and leadership, he saves Egypt from a devastating famine, saves his family as well, and his family goes on to become the nation of Israel. So, in other words, Joseph's life ends in greatness. But that's not where it began. And so I want to start at the beginning and consider with you just a few key things that, see, that I think Joe's overall experience teaches us about life in general. First, it teaches us uh, about the hidden truth and depth of sin. 
Uh, several years ago, I had a chance to be in Washington State and uh, uh, visit Mount St. Helens and walk around and, and, and look at the mountain. And for those of you who may not remember, before May 18th, 1980, uh, the mountain looked somewhat like this. It was very lovely, nice, tranquil. Uh, after May 18th, it looked more like this. Why? Well, because invisible to the naked eye, deep inside that mountain, something bad was brewing. Uh, and with little warning, that, that seemingly beautiful, stable, tranquil mountain, just, it, it just erupted. Literally, it blew its top, uh, causing an awful lot of, of destruction and devastation. Joseph's situation uh, was a lot like that mountain. To the casual observer, his family seemed, you know, they seemed nice. It was a big family, prosperous, well-established, stable family. But beneath the surface, there was some really bad stuff brewing. Uh, Jacob, for example, Israel, uh, Joe's dad, we're told in verse 3 that uh, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, what was that about? And it's a bit of a convoluted family history, but um, essentially some of it had to do with the fact that Jacob himself grew up desperately seeking the love and affirmation of his father, Isaac, who loved his other son, Esau, more. You know, so what, what goes around comes around. You know, the sins of the father gets, get, gets passed down, as they say. And, and so Jacob, you know, he had some issues. He had some emotional deficits that contributed to him doing some unwise, deceitful, even, you know, just plain sinful things throughout his life. At this point, Jacob had 12 sons by four different women. And uh, Joseph was the first son of his one and only true love, Rachel. And when Rachel died, giving birth to their son, Benjamin, Joseph became the emotional focus of his father's life. And Jacob treated Joe different from everybody else, and he wasn't subtle about it. The text says that Jacob made him uh, an ornate robe. Uh, and uh, the Hebrew phrase here is, is somewhat ambiguous as to what it exactly means. A, little, a literal translation is a robe of ornaments or a robe of colors. Some scholars translate it a coat of many colors or an ornamental tunic or an embroidered long sleeve garment. But no matter how you translate it, uh, the point is this was, a, this was a rather fancy, flashy, ostentatious, costly robe uh, not normally worn by working class shepherds, and none of the other sons got one because jo- you know Jacob lavished money and treasures on Joseph like nobody else. And uh, as we all know, as Jesus once put it, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And Jacob's heart was with Joseph. In a sense, Joseph became the idol of his father's life to the detriment of everybody. And that kind of, you know, that kind of relational idolatry, I mean, it messed up the family. Uh, and it was hurtful. Uh, it sinfully poisoned the, the sibling dynamic, to say the least. And it certainly poisoned Joseph. I don't know about you, but often when I think of Joseph, I think of him as sort of the innocent recipient of his father's twisted affection. But that's not completely the story. That's not exactly true. I mean, Joseph wasn't altogether innocent. In fact, his life was headed in a bad direction. Why do I say that? Well, in verse 2, we're told that Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending his father's flocks with his brothers, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, when you read that, you think, no big deal. Maybe they they deserved that something was going on, and so he brought a bad report back. But here's the thing. The Hebrew term report 
elsewhere in Scripture is always used in a negative sense, as in something blatantly not true or news that's spun in a way uh, that's misleading and intentionally damaging to others. In other words, bad report means Joseph didn't tell his father the truth. Either he, he outright, li- outright lied or he spun the facts in a way to make himself look good and to make his brothers look like a bunch of knuckleheads and therefore, you know, securing even more so his father's affection. So in short, he behaves like a spoiled, arrogant, dishonest, sinfully manipulative person. What about his brothers? Well, we're told that they hated him for this kind of stuff. They hated him for it. They couldn't speak a kind word to him. Every time they saw Joseph with that stupid coat, you know, it reminded them of how dad loved him more and they knew what kind of person Joe was becoming and they just couldn't stand him. And this week I was listening to, um, to the Eagles and uh, they have some really in-depth psychological uh, insights that, uh, if you know the Eagles, Don Henley uh, and the Eagles sing in one of their songs, Anger is just love disappointed. And isn't that true? And these guys were angry. They were disappointed. Their father's love was, was given to Joseph only. And so these, this was, these guys were wounded. They were jealous. They were bitter. They were, they were deceptive. They were violent guys. Suffice it to say, this was not a perfect family unit. (laughs) Uh, No matter how good, how prosperous, how impressive, how all together things may have looked on the outside, there was some messed up stuff going on 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 the inside. There was some sinful dynamics that were, were going on, and it was all about to explode. It was about to blow up. And I think it's easy for us to read the story of these people and think, man, what a messed up crew this was. But, you know, I, 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 I'm slow to judge them on this. And, and frankly, I, I hesitate to do it. I want to cut them some slack because to a certain degree, it's how all families are. Yeah, I mean, isn't that true? Who, come, who in here comes from a perfect family? Not me. Who here is living in a perfect family? Not me. Who here is raising a perfect family? Not me. See, whether we're talking about the ancient Near East or contemporary American culture, it makes no difference. Human beings are human beings. And we are all imperfect, sinful creatures, broken, wounded somehow. There are no perfect people, no perfect women, no perfect men, no perfect fathers, no perfect mothers, no perfect kids, and therefore there are no perfect families. Although granted, you know, Jacob's family was on the extreme end of things in terms of imperfection and ill health. And to be honest about it, Joseph didn't help matters. Uh, he was a guy, he was a guy given to dreaming and he had these dreams in which he saw himself ruling over his brothers. And so what does he do? He tells them about it. What? He goes to his brothers and says, hey, listen to this dream I had. You know, we were all, it's really cool. We were binding sheaves out of gray out in the field together when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brother's like, what are you saying? Are you, are you, do you intend to reign over us? And then the scripture says, and they hated him all the more for this. And as if that, weren't, if that, if that wasn't bad enough, Joe has a second dream. And what does he do? He goes back and he tells his brothers about it. He says, oh, listen to this one. This one's awesome. You know, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
Basically, he was saying, you know, I'm going to rule over the whole family, including mom and dad. And the fact that he goes back a second time indicates to me that at the very least, Joe was self-absorbed and perhaps pathologically insensitive. Uh, And at worst, he was on his way to becoming an arrogant, cruel, and evil person. He even goes and tells his father about the dream. And Jacob, who just adored him, you know, adored Joseph, he, he rebukes the kid. And the, in the Hebrew, the, the term for rebuke is a very strong term. And so I'm not convinced it was, it was just the dream itself that warranted the rebuke, but, but also the manner by which Joe relayed it. I mean, with such hubris that even his doting father tries to knock him down a peg or so. So um, beneath, well, on the outside, seemed to be a big, prosperous, um, stable family across the board. There was woundedness, and there was brokenness, and there was sin. I mean, there was arrogance and deceit and jealousy and bitterness and hate. But you know, again, that's, that's the way it is with all of us. No matter how good we look on the outside, individually or as a couple or as a family, no matter how good we may look on the outside, beneath the surface is the hidden truth and depth of sin. We're all broken. We're all wounded. As we see with Joseph, um, even in an already messed up situation, though, things for him are going about, about to get worse. And in the remaining course of his life, Joe is, is going to learn about th- the hidden purposes of God. Uh, one day, his father sends him to check on his brother's uh, grazing flocks at a place called Shechem. And so Joseph goes out to Shechem, but the guys aren't there. Uh, and he runs into a stranger who says, oh yeah, I, I, the shepherds, they were here. I heard them over talk. I heard them talking, overheard them talking about going to out to Dothan. Now Dothan was a very remote location. So Joseph says, okay, great. And he goes out to Dothan to find them and he sees them. And as he approaches them, we're told that, you know, with total disdain, 10 of the brothers say, here comes that stupid dreamer. Here comes the kid. Let's, let's kill him. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. Let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns. Basically, there are these deep wells. Let's throw him in this ditch, basically, and, and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Well, Reuben, who happened to be the oldest of the group, he, and, and apparently one with at least half a brain, he says, hey, wait, wait, we can't do that. He says, look, we can beat the kid up. We can rough him up a little bit, you know, uh, and we can even throw him in a cistern for a while, but we can't murder the kid. We can't do that. And so they agree uh, to a certain extent, I suppose. And so they, they rough him up and we're told that they stripped him of the ornate robe that he was wearing. Again, it was kind of this in-your-face deal and they, they just lost it. So they, they tore it off him. They roughed him up. They threw him into this cistern that had no water and it was empty. And then what do they do? <laughs> they, we're told in Scripture they sat down and ate lunch. Is that weird? You talk, I mean, hey, yeah, we just beat up our brother and threw him in a ditch. Let's have a hoagie, you know. It's just strange, but um, they were very callous, and um, for so so for some reason, apparently at some point here, Reuben, the oldest, he wanders off to take care of some other business, and while he's gone, these merchants come by, heading to Egypt, and the other brothers they they get this idea, they say let's let's pull Joe out of the out of the cistern, out of the well, and let's sell him for twenty shekels of silver, and that's what they do, about eight ounces of silver. So he's gone. 
Reuben comes back, the firstborn, and he, see, he says, where's the kid? Ah, we sold him off you know, in, into slavery. He's a what? You know, he freaks out because he's going to be held responsible. But eventually he concedes because he didn't like the kid anyway. You know, he eventually concedes and agrees to what they do is they soak Joe's robe in blood and uh, they go with the ferocious animal story. And they go back and that's what they tell dad. They lie. Now think of the think of the outplay of these events, events which some people would call coincidental. Dad happens to send Joe to see his brothers at this place called Shechem. The brothers happen to leave Shechem and go to Dothan, a very remote place where whatever happens out there, no one's going to know about. Joe happens, he goes to Shechem, he happens to bump into a stranger who happened to overhear the shepherds a couple days earlier saying that they were going to Dothan. So when Joe goes to Dothan and he gets there, Reuben happens to be around to save him from being killed, but happens not to be there to save him from being sold to merchants who happen to go by heading to Egypt. The whole series of events unfold a very specific and certain way. I mean, if Jacob doesn't send Joe, if the brothers don't go to Dothan, if Joe doesn't meet a stranger who heard that they were going to Dothan, if, if Joe wasn't sold or killed... If Joe was killed but not sold, I mean, unless everything happened exactly the way that it did, everybody dies. Everybody. Because this famine, this brutal famine was coming, and and Joseph had to be brought to a place of influence and power. Otherwise, otherwise not only he uh, does Joe and his family die, tens of, thousands Egyptian, uh, tens of thousands of Egyptians die, and the people... The nation from whom the Messiah of God, Jesus himself, would come, the Israelites, would never exist. So here's my, here's my Reiki summary. Although he's not mentioned in the text here in the chapter, he's not mentioned in the chapter and seems absent on the surface, God is at work. Down to the smallest detail, God is behind the scenes managing all that happens. All the chaos, all the awful things, the terrible things, the weird things, the random things, themes that just made no sense, God was arranging them with purpose to bring about good. The salvation of Jacob's family, the salvation of a pagan nation, a pagan people, and ultimately the salvation of the world. On a more personal level, it was through the events of his life that Joseph would be saved from being a total jerk. Because that's the direction he was going. And at some point along the way, through the betrayal, through the violence, through the enslavement, through the injustice, through the imprisonment, Joseph came to realize that most of his life was out of his control. And so in humility, he just surrendered himself to God in all of his circumstances, the good, the bad, the in-between. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to explore all of his other experiences as a servant and in prison and in Pharaoh's court. But... Suffice it to say that by the time Joseph reaches the pinnacle of power and, and success and influence in Egypt, he had also discovered the hidden reality of God's grace. When he was a slave in the house of the guy Potiphar, uh, we're told in chapter 39 that the Lord was with Joseph there. And so he prospered and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. In fact, even when Potiphar's wife tried to put the moves on him, uh, Joseph said to her, look, you're married. This is, I can't do this. He, he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And so, you know, she, to get revenge, she accuses him of seducing her and he gets sent to prison. But we're told while he was in prison, the Lord was with him. 
And God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The Lord was with Joseph and, Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. When he ends up in the court of Pharaoh, the king, and the king asks him for help. And Joseph says to the king, I can't help you, but God can. In humility, Joseph takes no glory for his own and gives it only to God. And then by the time his brothers show up in Egypt to get help in the midst of the famine that, that comes, jo and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he doesn't judge them, he doesn't curse them, he doesn't take revenge. Instead, he extends to them grace, forgiveness, kindness. The same grace, the same forgiveness and kindness he received from God. In fact, Joseph says to his brothers, he says, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, there's been famine in the land and for the next five, there will be no plowing and reaping. He says, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it wasn't you who sent me here really, but God. And then as a result, we're told that uh, his family settled in Egypt and they acquired property and they, they, uh, they were fruitful and they, they increased in, in great numbers. And whenever his brothers got, got a little insecure, felt a little insecure about their relationship with Joseph and he's still in the, this powerful place of influence and everything, Joseph would say to them, he said, look, am I in the place of God? Am I God? He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, saving of many lives. My Ray K. translation, he says, it's all good. It's all good. So it's an amazing story, really, how despite a rough, rough start, the sin, the hardships, that God's grace in Joseph's life through, through the good and the bad led him to extend grace to his family, the Israelites, ultimately through whom grace would be extended to the whole world in and through Jesus. Now, I'm not sure, but I think we may have set a world record in con covering the whole life of Joseph in the shortest amount of time ever in the history of, uh, of attempts. Uh, and so with the next few minutes we have, I, I want to mention just a couple of other applicational truths that I have personally gleaned from the story. And, um, and I can't go into detail, much detail on any of them, but I, I think they're worth, worth mentioning. And, uh, and you guys can think about them and process them and discuss them with each other later today or, or later this week. But for one, the story of Joseph illustrates to me the difference between traditional religion and the gospel of grace. In fact, Scripture is always showing us this. I mean, think about it. What is traditional religion? What does religion say? Religion says, okay, here are the rules, here are the regulations for good living. Here are the models, here are the heroes of, of faith and their stories. Be good like them. And maybe God will bless you. But here's the thing. There are no truly good people in this story. There aren't any. There are broken people. There are wounded people. They're troubled people, arrogant people, jealous people, bitter people, violent people, sinful people, but no truly good ones. So what's up with that? I mean, what, what's that about? How, how is this story supposed to help me live a good life? And if that's the first question you're asking, then you're, you're misunderstanding the point of Scripture. The, uh, the biblical record of men and women and people like Joseph is not primarily about showing you how to live a good life. That's an ancillary issue. 
The primary uh, purpose of Scripture is to show you the grace of God. To reveal to you how it unexpectedly breaks into our lives and rescues us from the sin and brokenness we could never overcome ourselves. The story of Joseph isn't about a guy who works hard and makes it on his own and earns God's favor. It's about a sinful guy who experiences and acknowledges the incredible grace of God, and he's humbled by it, he's saved by it, and man, is he changed by it. That's not religion. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The story of Joseph teaches me that in the course of life, uh, it's okay to know and not know what God's doing. All at the same time. That's perfectly acceptable. At 17, you know, Joseph says to, his, says to his family, I know what God's doing. I know what he's going to do in my life. He's going to make me a king. And I'm going to rule over all you messed up people. That's basically what he said. But that's not exactly what God had in mind, was it? And Joseph really had no real idea what he was going to go through. What, the times that would lay ahead of him. You know, the twists, the turns, the ups and downs. And where he would ultimately end up. He didn't know. On the other hand, his brothers, they're like, no way. There's no way you're going to be a ruler, man. That's stupid. It's never going to happen, dude. Rule this. How about we throw you in a ditch? You know, that's... You see, so in, in some ways, Joe was like people who say, I know what God wants. I know what he's doing in my life and where he's taking me. His brothers, his brothers represent, the, represent those who say, God's not doing anything. If you told me when I was 17, I'd be standing up here doing this teaching and all this pastor stuff, I would have told you, you're crazy, man. You're nuts. You're off your bird. There's no way that's going to happen. I could never have imagined it. Even once I became a Christian, you know, I I became a follower of Jesus and I I got the sense that God wanted me to do something in terms of of ministry. I wasn't sure what it was. And I I can tell you this. I never would imagine living in the Midwest. I'm from North Jersey. We don't believe in anything west of Philly. You know, it's all speculative out there. But here I am. So trust me, if, if you think you know exactly what God is doing or going to do in your life, you might want to put a hold on that because things don't work out always the way you think. And when that happens, if they don't work out how you think and your dream scenario falls apart, you may have a crisis of faith. And you may say things like, God must not care about me. God must not be working. Wrong. That's wrong. Know that God is working. Just realize you can't know exactly what he's doing all the time and how he's doing it and why he's doing it the way he is. You can know and not know all at the same time. So don't assume. Don't be cynical. Trust God. How about this reality? The story tells us that God has great patience. He doesn't move quickly here, does he? I mean, he didn't work in and through Joseph's life overnight. I mean, from the time his brothers beat him up, strip him down, sell him off, it takes just over 30 years before Joseph finds himself in a position to reconcile with and rescue his people and gain some perspective on what God had done and why, why all the things happened the way they did and all of it. And uh, there were a lot of good things and bad experiences that God brought Joseph through. All of them to prepare him for that moment, that mission, that purpose. You know, in our lives, we're often pretty impatient. At least I am. I'm assuming that's true of most of us. 
We, we want God to do something. We want God to work. We want God to act, but we want him to do it fast. We want it now. We want the quick fix. But that doesn't seem to be God's MO. In Scripture, he's, he doesn't seem to work that way. He, he's not bound by time as we know it. He's in no rush. And therefore, God seems just as interested and invested in our journey as he is in our destination. Which means, to a certain degree, and I'm really not thrilled with this, but what that means is, to a certain degree, God is okay with my pain. He's okay with my pain. Because in his wisdom, he knows that it's through trials and suffering that character gets forged and faith gets proven and strengthened. I mean, if it weren't for trouble, would we ever even look to God? Without pain, how do we know, how do we, how do we define pleasure? Without bad, how do we understand good? We need contrast. Contrast leads to gratitude. Contrast helps us value the goodness and the grace of God. You know, Joseph would never have become the, the humble, kind, generous, forgiving person he was at the end of his life if it hadn't been for all of his experiences, all of them, especially the hard ones. And when he came to recognize, what he came to recognize was that even in those hard, lonely, painful, confusing moments, when it seemed like God was absent, the truth was God was right there with Joseph in the ditch, in slavery, in prison, even in the palace. And through it all, Joseph came to realize that God was, God was okay with his pain because ultimately it all played out for the fulfillment of God's good purpose, which include Joseph's good and his family's good and our good. And so as much as I hesitate to think about it, the fact is, if God is okay with Joseph's pain, I'm sure he's equally as okay with mine. Because it's leading to something good. Joe's story tells me that God can rescue and redeem any family or family member. That's good news. You know, my wife Margie and I, we have two reasonably grown up children. And I say reasonably because one is out of school, out of college, and one is still in. And uh, they're not here at this service one of them was here in the second service. So I was more careful, but they're not here now, so uh, I can say this. Uh, but uh, sometimes Margie and I will talk about the kids. We'll look back over the years and say, you know what? We did some things right, and we did some things not so right. And we look at both of them, and we realize, you know, they're normal, sinful, broken people too, just like everybody, you know. They have flaws just like Margie and I. Mostly they get them from her. Um, but who's pointing fingers? Seriously, I mean, who's pointing fingers? You know, um, yeah, they're, they're broken, wounded people like, like all of us. You know, my wife, Margie, and I, we, look, not, neither of us came from Christian homes or Christian traditions of any kind, really. And, and we, went through some, we went through some rough patches before we even knew each other. And um, me even more so than her. And uh, we are both living, breathing proof that uh, there's, there's no one beyond God's redemption. I mean, think of Joseph's family. How troubled was that situation? Young men hating and trying to kill each other. Yet eventually they all experienced God's rescue. So let's just admit it. Yeah, we, we're all broken, sinful people. All of us. The good news is 
No one person, no one family is beyond the reach of God's grace. Which brings me to the final thing Joe's story tells me, and that is those who experience God's grace can't help but extend that same grace to others. Joseph had some good excuses for hating his brothers who hated him and mistreated him in brutal, unloving ways. But Joe experienced love and kindness and goodness and forgiveness. He knew the grace of God in his life. And when you know that grace, not just intellectually, but experientially, then that same love, that same kindness and goodness and forgiveness, that same grace will pour out of your life onto others, in your family, among your circle of friends, and even to strangers. Now, sometimes uh, I hear people say things like, hey man, if God was in control of things, if that's true, he must be incompetent. <laughs> because look at my life. It's twirling down the toilet. I mean, things are hard. Uh, look what's happening to me. The pain, the, dis- the disappointment. If God's, if God's at work, he must not know what he's doing. And I get that sentiment. I mean, I understand that. But the story of Joseph shows us the opposite. That God is always at work and knows exactly what he's doing, even when we don't, even when we can't. That he's, he's with us in the good times, but he's with us, more importantly, even in the difficult times. And that he's bringing about good when all we can see is bad. And I believe that if you're willing to humbly consider Joe's story and allow it to really draw you in and, and to carefully examine what happened, you'll begin, you'll begin to gain a new perspective on your story. And you'll begin to see life differently. And not only life, but you'll begin to see God differently. And you'll open yourself to the reality of his goodness and grace. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful this morning for the lives and for the record of of these men, Job and Joseph. Job, who told us that life is complicated and we can't always comprehend what's happening. And Joseph, who proves it. Joseph's life tells us that uh, we're all broken, wounded, sinful people. No matter how good we look on on the outside, uh, there's something going on internally that uh, proves the brokenness, proves the woundedness, proves that we're all sinful creatures. Joseph shows us that in life, through the good, the bad, the ups, the downs, the twists, the turns, that you're at work and that you're always with us and that your grace is ever available to us. And his life tells us that even in the midst of suffering, uh, you are working for our good. It was through the suffering of Joseph that you rescued him, that you rescued his family, and that through his family, the Israelites, comes the Savior, Jesus, who offers grace and rescue to all of us, even to the world. And so, Lord, even in the midst of pain and suffering, uh, you are bringing about good. And as hard as that is to reconcile sometimes in our limited abilities as human beings, I pray that we would by faith trust you and commit ourselves to you and experience your grace and your love and acknowledge it in our lives, no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.